0: We're now recording everyone. And Arthur, <laughs> would you mind doing All right, the official well,
1: we'll officially start the meeting.
0: Yay! Welcome, welcome everyone. <laughs> welcome everyone. Hey. My name is Melanie Bennett. I am the producer on the film The World's My Country and facilitator on the World is My Country Club, working together towards a people-powered planet. So let me tell you how the meeting works. We are going to first, um, I will introduce Arthur, who will introduce our special guest today, and afterwards we'll have discussion and questions and things like that. But in the meantime, while everyone else is talking, everyone should know where their mute button is. So you go down to the bottom.
2: Right, and
0: you can mute yourself. So when other people are talking, everyone should be muted. And then afterwards, we will have you can raise your hands either physically, and I'll try to catch you. But it's even better if you try doing the hand raising uh, mechanism that Zoom has. Let's all try to raise our hands. What you do is go down to part down to the bottom, and click on participant. Uh, You'll see the hand raising. Can everyone try to raise their hands? Tom, everybody, try to. Terry's got it. Yes. So Janet, are you able to? Does that, uh, Lee, I see Lee's here today. Great. Um, yeah. So it's basically at the bottom. We'll give you some time to look at that. And uh, you can uh, also use the chat and connect with me if you have any problems. So now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to, and everyone, we'd, I'd like to introduce our wonderful host, the director of the film The World Is My Country, our host at the club, Mr. Arthur Kanegas, take it away.
1: Well, thank you. Yay. Thank you you so much. And we're we're very pleased to have uh, uh, a a number of wonderful guests with us, including, uh, oh, just stepping out of the picture there was my wife, uh, Molly Post, who's known Hazel for, oh, decades and decades.
3: Yes. Hi, Molly. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and uh, we are so, and we're very glad to have uh, Jerry, who's uh, uh, head, head to Local citizen for Global Solutions, and Marty and Shirley, uh, lots of wonderful uh, people here on the call. And I know, uh, I think there's some more. There was someone from Germany, uh, from uh, England who was about to join us. And uh, oh, here's, here's Jane. Welcome, Wayne. Uh, who do we have at the 828-318 uh, number? Uh, you can unmute yourself a second and introduce yourself. Oh, uh, uh, this is Jim Barton. Uh, oh, wonderful. Yeah, Jim, Jim has been a very active global citizen for many years, great researcher and uh, worked very actively with the Citizens for Global Solutions in Washington, D.C., right? And also in, in North Carolina. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wonderful. All right, great to have you uh, with us and looking forward to having you join us as we uh Begin to build the people-powered planet. Now, the whole purpose of our club here is that, uh, as you know, uh, Melanie and I made a, a movie called "The World Is My Country," and in it, Gary told his amazing story of uh, his adventures as a, w- as a world citizen. And he gave a prescription at the end for you know a way out of this mess we're in, uh, uh, how we could create what he called a people-powered planet. Um, and you know. Einstein said that he was the guy with the key to whether humans continue to live on this planet or whether we do ourselves in. So it's probably worth listening to Gary, and, and we did, <laughs> and and uh, we started this club to begin to talk with uh, wonderful individuals and begin to develop the how do we actually implement the people-powered planet he he mentioned. How do we get ourselves off this? How do we save the world in a hurry? You know, how do we get ourselves off the path of? Uh, a doom and self-destruction that's been created out of the nation-state system, and evolve beyond that to a, a more powerful, uh, better way that we, the citizens, can begin to govern our world. Uh, so, with that, I I would like to introduce our our very special guest, Hazel Henderson. Uh, Hazel is uh, uh, a, an evolutionary economist, and she's the author of uh, of, of some wonderful books like uh, uh, like the uh, creating creating alternative futures uh, you know the end the end of economics <laughs> the end of economics Wow uh, yeah. she's also uh, she's also done ethical markets growing the the green the green economy growing the green economy and uh, also uh, planetary citizenship so uh, she's a perfect guest for mm-hmm. us to begin to ask the key question you know as we begin to do what Gary said as we begin to work on evolving and developing the people powered planet uh, we obviously need to do we've obviously got some very broken things in the current economic system and perhaps hazel has some uh, solutions to offer us for uh, how a bottom-up from a bottom-up citizens uh, standpoint we can begin to create uh, a new economy in our world a better way to a better way to uh, to, to incentivize uh, doing good in the world rather than bad. You know, one of the other things that Hazel did is she said the GDP is the gross national product. Actually, you know, this gross national pollution and, 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 and mm-hmm. destroying the world uh, and talking about an alternative index. Uh, maybe we could start with Hazel telling us a little bit about her alternative index and, 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 and who she partnered with to create this.
2: Well, thank you, Arthur. And, you know, to me, Gary Davis is kind of the quintessential uh, global planetary citizen. And uh, what an amazing film you guys created. Uh, It's just incredible. Uh, I just loved every minute of it. So, yeah, very early in the game, you know, uh, when I first came to this country uh, from Britain, I became a I became a citizen of the U.S. in 1963, and started a group called Citizens for Clean Air, because I realized that the air in New York City was just as bad as it had been in London. You know, which caused 4,000 excess deaths in one week back in the 1960s. And so, I didn't. Uh, I had uh, never went to college. Um, and so, uh, basically, uh, um, even though I ended up with four honorary degrees, I never had to waste any time in college and I never had to go into student debt or anything like that, you know, and I learned very much by being an environmental activist and I knew enough, uh, even back then in the sixties, when I started Citizens for Clean Air, that somehow or other, the GDP um, didn't include all the bads that came along with the goods. And the bads, of course, being pollution and all of the messes that we see around us. And so part of the program of our group, and uh, we had block captains in every borough of the city of New York, and I found an ad, ad agency to do a free campaign for us about air pollution and basically we realized that something in in our um, program had to refer to the fact that the GDP um, was going to be steering us over the cliff unless it subtracted all of the bads from the goods, you know. And so um, that became quite a theme in my life and many, many years later. Um, after I'd been a policy wonk in Washington for six years and seen the whole thing up front, you know, and all the lobbying that uh, fossil fuels companies were doing to keep polluting the air and all of that kind of thing, uh, I realized uh, I, I became an advisor to the first one of the first uh, mutual funds that screened out polluting companies and companies that manufactured weapons and had bad records on uh, uh, employee rights and all of those things. And uh, so I persuaded them to do an alternative to GDP with me, which we called the calvert Henderson Quality of Life Indicators. And instead of having it all bunched up in one number, and all measured by money, uh, we decided that that was really stupid and what you should also do um, is unbundle all of these indicators that were important like air pollution and uh, uh, health and uh, education and all of the other things that were important and we should use the proper scientific metric for each one. And there was nothing about money Uh, And that's all GDP is, as you know. It's just a cash flow kind of indicator. And you lose all of the important detail. So our indicators were 12, and every time uh, we were looking at whatever it was, we picked the right scientific uh, indicator. So for pollution, air pollution, naturally uh, we had parts per million of junk in the air. You know, nothing to do with money, you know, even though the economists would say, oh, well, we can measure the pollution by saying how costly it is to launder um, shirts. <laughs> and everything, see, that, that's the fallacy of economists. They're so hypnotized by money. And as we know, money has nothing to do with wealth. It's not wealth, at all it doesn't measure wealth, all the money does is track and keep score of the human interactions with the real wealth of nature and and our own uh, wealth in terms of our um, talents and creativity. So so anyway, uh, now fast forward, uh, what happened by 2007, I was invited by the European Commission to be on an organizing committee they had um, for a conference they were putting together for the European Parliament and all of the member countries called Beyond GDP. Mm. And so, so what we decided to do then by that time I had started this company because it's an alternative media company that's run out of my garage here like all good um, media companies on the internet, you know, you don't need a big office or anything like that. And um, so we decided that we would do a survey with the big, uh, the best global uh, public opinion company called Globescan. And we said, okay, we'll do a survey um, of how ordinary people in 12 different countries, north, south, east, and west, if they understood, as we had so many years before, that GDP measured in money didn't tell us anything about uh, real progress. So we did the first survey, and we found in all 12 countries that the ordinary citizens, by huge majority, 78 82%, um, all agreed that GDP had to be expanded to include real indicators um, in education, health, the environment, and all of that. Now so how did that end up getting used by a, an investment company, Calvert Investment, did that. address yes, a lot of investors into yes, the alternative. Uh, so um, I took the Calvert Henderson quality of life indicators, and we had a little booth there at the European Commission, along, along with all the other people around the world who had alternative indicators. But the economists had always pushed those people into the basement, you know? And their indicators of health and education using real science and real metrics um, were overcome really by all of the reigning fashion, which is everything has to be turned into money so that we can have the economists on top. And that's one of the big, big problems we've had and helped create the mess we're in right now. And that's what what I'd like to focus
1: on a little more is how we, I mean, so many of us are aware that the current economy is pretty screwed up, the GDP and so on. And in our limited time, I'd like to dwell more on solutions. So we consider this kind of a a, a solutionary uh, (laughs) uh, program. So what do we see as the things that we can do to actually begin to change that? How do you visualize uh, a new economy, uh, say a
2: people-powered economy? uh, Really, that's why I was just about to shift to the SDGs, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. They were all developed grassroots. And those 17 goals really are the very opposite of the GDP. And and I like to say that the GDP incentivizes the seven deadly sins, count them, you know, greed, acquisitiveness, competition, envy, you name it. And uh, the SDGs, which take us to a much more indigenous and systemic uh, kind of... uh, Ethical behavior that we all know and that is the golden rule. And so that's where we are now uh, that I'm thrilled that the UN for the first time the UN began to really understand media and they've put a tremendous amount of effort into public relations and marketing and advertising and getting those sustainable development goals Uh, adopted all over the world so that now even companies are adopting them. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we've done over the past decade at Ethical Markets Media is we've been tracking all of the private investments in green technologies and uh, the kind of technologies that fit into the future of the SDGs, you know, electric cars and uh, green energy, solar, wind, the circular economy, just like nature has it, you know, where you don't have any kind of waste. Everything gets recycled and reused. And so there's a lot of different things going on now. And I just posted something very encouraging this morning in our latest headlines, which you can sign up for free And this is a speech by a woman who's, guess what, in charge of climate for the Bank of England. Hmm. And she's making a speech to a whole lot of bankers and financial people and saying, okay, we at the Bank of England are going to reveal all of our... Climate risks in, you know, when they do quantitative easing and they buy up all those dud mortgages the way they did to get us out of the last uh, financial crisis. Now uh, they're going to disclose uh, all of the 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 financial risks um, in the the in the asset side, and that's going to be incredible because Mm it will mean that they'll have to throw out all those fossil fuel companies. And if they do what they call quantitative easing, which is buying up all of these assets onto their balance sheet, they'll have to buy up electric car companies and they'll have to buy up um, companies that are in recycling and upcycling waste, you see. And so this could be a huge, huge multiplier. And 66 central banks get this, around the world, have now signed up to the network um, for greening finance, 66 of the world's biggest central banks. So it's happening quickly. Great. Wonderful.
1: Well, I think, okay, so clearly what you're doing is a key part of the equation, which is to uh, begin to... Uh, show them that it's actually in their long-term economic interest, even within the current financial system, to actually factor in the key factor of the the sustainable development goals and the survival of of humanity. But moreover, beyond that, um, it seems like there's some some central distortions in the current economic system, which is the fact that uh, profit has to be the bottom line, even when it's uh, when it's destructive. And when, even when, when people heading companies don't want to do certain bad things, they have to or they can competed out of business and so on. Uh, how can some of these structural, uh, how can we incentivize, incentivize, you talk about a love economy, how do we incentivize the, the doing good, the sharing the positive, and how do, we, uh, how do we make that something that's even built into the core of the economic system so it doesn't have this
2: downward spiral? Yeah. Well, it does begin with disclosure of the risks to the way we're operating now. And the risks we all know are not only climate change, but destruction by nuclear weapons, by uh, pandemics. I mean, you know, this pandemic we're going through now, Um, is only uh, one of a whole string of new ones, which will keep on emerging. You know, I I did a paper on this um, with my friend, the physicist Fritjof Capra, you know, who wrote the Tao of Physics and all that. And we called it uh, Pandemics, uh, Lessons Looking Back from 2050. And we imagined ourselves as citizens in the year 2050. And we look at how how the whole thing changed. And the whole thing changed, of course, was because uh, the financial system, which really at the moment has been the flywheel of social and environmental destruction on the whole planet, suddenly we turned around the financial system by forcing them. To account for the risks they were creating, and um, and you know, so what happened, you know, is that ordinary investors began to sell their shares, and that's that's happening now. I don't know whether all of you noticed that uh, that um, after the oil price dropped about a month ago into actual negative territory, the big oil companies all had to cut their dividends. And they lost a tremendous amount on their uh, stock prices. Same thing that's happening to Facebook today and yesterday, where they refuse to act fast enough to take down all the hate and all of the sewage that's on their site. And so all of these big advertisers now withdrawing their ads from Facebook. And Facebook stock lost 8.5% of its value uh, yesterday on the stock exchange. So the reason that we have focused on finance is because it's kind of um, at the top of the food chain in terms of everybody sort of believing that money is on top of everything. And even though that's entirely mythical and wrong, uh, we, we now have to destroy that myth. And that's what I uh, talked about with creating alternative futures had to be the end of economics as kind of uh, the neon god we created. You know, the people bowed and prayed, to this neon god we made, the money. And so uh, basically, you know, that's the way uh, it's beginning to happen now. So how
1: do we then, uh, how do you visualize in the alternative futures the kind of economy you would like to see on our planet? Uh, How would that look?
2: Well, uh, as, as Fred schoff and I wrote in our scenario, which is on our website, um, basically, um, everything goes much more local. And um, we forget about these uh, great long globalization trends where everybody's shipping stuff around. And we go back to something which doesn't mean to say, Uh, It's like completely going back to the past, because we have all the communications tools so that we can interact the way we are right now. But basically, um, it means that instead of shipping stuff around, which each country and each neighborhood and community knows how to produce itself for what it wants. And of course, that's why I've always supported local currencies you know, where people can develop their own local, uh, economies. And, uh, so basically that is, is basically the model. And it's instead of shipping around cars and, uh, all of this equipment and stuff and cakes and cookies and all of that, we ship around the recipes mm-hmm. for the green oh. technologies. We share all of the best technology. And uh, so it probably means very much less airline travel, much more with electric um, buses and trains, and very few people really needing to own electric cars, uh, much more like electric bicycles, and that we get our streets back in the cities so that um, people can um, use the streets again, they are open to pedestrians instead of traffic. This is um, this is the model in New York City now. You know, we started under Mayor Bloomberg, a young woman who used to play with my daughter when they were both at school together. Um, she is heading up. Uh, She headed up the transportation system in the city of New York, brought in the bicycles, began to reclaim the city streets from cars. And so that's happening now in many cities. And of course, uh, this means that we have cleaner air. And uh, most of the goods um, and services will be produced and exchanged locally. Mm -hmm. Why not? So that's just one of the, I mean, I can't go into all of the details, but you know.
1: Now it seems to me one of the core things that happens in that we, in our uh, economy that constantly has to grow, is that we have to create ways of, getting, of, of, of advertising and pushing people to waste. For example, uh, you know, I have an old Vitamix uh, that's, you know, maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 years old, it still runs, works fine. They used to make appliances that lasted for years, my Hamilton Beach uh, mixer. Uh, And then they started calculating how they could create built-in obsolescence so you sell more every year and so on. That waste becomes sort of built into the system. How do we build into the system uh, the advantages of sustainability and the advantages of of things that serve uh, humanity?
2: Well, there again, it's the incentive system, um, which we have to change from the old economy where everything has to be chewed up and turned into money. And once you take that away, and this is happening now um, with all of the circular economy ideas, which were developed by Ellen MacArthur, you know, the woman who sailed around the world uh, by herself in a, in a, uh, a boat. And uh, uh, more and more now, uh, there's, uh, what, 7.5 billion members of our human family and resources are getting scarcer and more valuable than they used to be. And so now the incentives to make a living or to make profit if you're a company um, is to take those resources and reuse them and upcycle them. And I'm an advisor to a company called ecore and you can go and look at the, what they do but uh, on their website, ecorglobal.com, and uh, they will take all of the waste from whatever uh, operation it is, and on the, uh, right there in the plant, they will turn it into something useful the next day. For example, uh, they are working with um, Heineken's beer uh, in many countries, and the problem was, what do you do with the hops? the shells from the hops. So they gather up the shells right there every day and turn them into the cardboard six packs hmm. for the next day's use. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and that becomes wow. the incentive model. You see that, that the resources now are too valuable um, to waste.
1: Right, excellent. Well, now Gary uh, created what he called the kilowatt dollar uh, he also was, as you talked about, into creating a world world money, a, a world mm-hmm. currency uh, that was based on, he based it on uh, on, on energy. He said, you know, energy mm-hmm. is a, is a mm-hmm. thing that keeps everything flowing. Uh, tell us, you know, what is money, really? And when we understand what is money, how do we begin to create uh, the alternative currencies that can actually, instead of uh, suppressing us from getting what we need in our lives, you know, help us create what we need in our lives. It seems to be far more people want to give and help others and do things and they're blocked from doing it because they can't get a job doing that. So they have to take a job doing something that's hurting people. They don't like it. They'd much rather be helping others and serving others. How can mm-hmm. we build in the economy the ability to release people's fantastic passion to actually want to give their
2: talents and, and, and help the world? Well, uh, Gary Davis was completely correct um, in understanding about money. And uh, essentially, money is a social protocol that we all use. It's, It's basically units of trust, either physical tokens of trust or paper or electronic tokens of trust. And we all know that trust doesn't really scale very, very far. Trust is what happens face to face communities, and that 's always been the problem with money. It somehow got loose into this globalized economy and, um, and it had no, there 's no trust uh, uh, involved with it anymore, and so uh, we began to realize um, how false money is as a kind of a steering mechanism. Um, once we got into cryptocurrencies and once everybody began to see that like Bitcoin, which I always refer to as Bitcoin, mm-hmm. um, basically they're, they're just um, vehicles for speculation. Uh, and uh, I was I have been involved for several years with a group based on Gary Davis's idea of money uh, based on um, uh, solar Uh, energy, solar electricity, because you can't mess around with it. You know, a kilowatt hour is a kilowatt hour is a kilowatt hour. And we call ourselves the Green Money uh, Working Group. And um, one of the partners that we have on our website, if anyone wants to go to our partners page or find all of these different groups that we love, that we think are doing excellent things. And there's one called Solar Coin. And this is a, you could call it a cryptocurrency, except what it really is, um, is a rewards currency. And you you can't get a solar coin, which of course is a digital coin. You can't get it unless you can prove with a third party verifier that you have created so many kilowatt hours of solar electricity for your roof or for your, plant or your shopping center or whatever. And so um, that's really very much the kind of currency that Gary Davis had in mind.
1: Very good. Well, you know, there's a a group called Global Citizen, and they've got top rock stars and so on, all all putting on concerts. And the only way to get a ticket to that concert, uh, you can't buy a ticket. You have to, you, you, you get points by doing things that serve your community, that do other things, you sign up, right. and you get that's points right. by being a good global citizen. Uh, and so I think that's kind of an example of what you're,
2: what you're talking about. Yes, very much so. And then, of course, all the local currencies that I've followed for years and years, and the ones that everybody knows the best, I think, are the ones that the Schumacher Society uh, created 20 years ago called uh, Berkshares and uh, they circulate in that, the little town of Great Barrington in Massachusetts, and all of the banks accept them. And uh, it, it means really that you have um, local currency, the Berkshires in one pocket, and you have US dollars in the other pocket, and you only use the US dollars if you need something from outside the community. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, you use your Berkshire's, and it's created a very robust local economy, and anyone that wants to look at it can just go to the Schumacher Society in Great Barrington mm-hmm. and uh, see um, how all of the businesses and the banks uh, trade in Berkshire's rather than U.S. dollars.
1: Very interesting. Well, in a few moments, I want to try to open it to questions from other people. But before I do, uh, you've mentioned Gary a couple of times. And uh, tell me, uh, what was your contact with Gary?
2: Well, I, I was just totally amazed. Uh, this was in the late 1970s. And I was uh, doing, I was on the board of the law school at the University of Florida and I was doing a television program with their PBS station called, Guess What? Creating Alternative Futures. And I had all, people, all kinds of friends of mine like Gene Houston uh, come down there and uh, do this television show with me. And uh, one day uh, the, the, the doorbell rang and there was this guy that I did, had ne- never met. And he introduced himself and came in and we sat down and chatted. And he said, well, you know, I, I think you're kind of a global citizen. I said, well, yeah, I guess I, I've always felt like that, you know, <laughs> and we had um, we had a general conversation you know, about um, all of the issues which you've covered so beautifully in the film. You know, what an amazing guy. I think he must've been going to do a lecture at the University of Florida, I can't quite remember. Mm -hmm. But um, it it was an amazing uh, encounter. I was just, uh, I mean, I understand now how incredibly valuable it was. Great, wonderful,
1: wonderful. Well, uh, let me open the lines if anybody else has uh, some questions. Uh, we can continue our discussion, but uh, if anybody wants to either indicate by raising their hand physically or by going down to the participant uh, button and clicking raise hands, either one works. Uh,
0: Jane, Jane has her hand up. Go ahead. Um, yes.
3: Um, I'm a systems ecologist by education. So I am very sympathetic to a lot of this stuff.
1: Wait, wait! speak a little louder or a little closer to your computer. I'm having Um, trouble hearing you.
3: I'm a systems ecologist by education. So I'm really sympathetic to a lot of this stuff. But I have um, concerns about localization. And two basic ones. Um, The first one, over the last... 12 years or so, i lived in two places, Georgia and then California that had major droughts. In that area, there was hardly any rain, but the price of food and our ability to get food hardly changed at all. And that's because we were automatically getting food from many places, from different parts of the country, from different parts of the world. So we were able, so we were buffered against those droughts. Now, how do you get that kind of resilience in a localized system? And number two, as long as we don't have a World Federation yet, um, if there is evidence that t- international trade promotes peace. So, how do we keep that benefit?
1: So, Hazel? Oh,
2: you're, ha- you're muted, Hazel. Uh, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I was unable to hear uh, most of that. If you could summarize that for me, Arthur. Melanie, can you,
1: I was also having trouble hearing it. Could, hmm. could you catch it, Melanie? All right,
0: Jane, yeah. So basically, if you have, she was doing the example of when there was a drought in California and when there's droughts in a local economy, the price of food didn't go down uh, because you were able to get our food. Up, up. Our price, the price didn't go up because there was, you know, a local economy. So how is it that you can uh, make this local economy work when, you know, that's such a benefit, you can get food from other places when you're, you're in a drought situation. Is that what you said, Jane? Yes, that okay. kind of example, yes.
2: Okay. Uh, well, I, I would just say that to gen- speaking generally, um, as our human societies have evolved and our technologies evolved, uh, we now are well into the information age and uh, our communication tools are so much better than they ever have been before, just witness what we're all doing right now, that we can exchange knowledge and um, and most of the uh, advanced uh, economies today and most of the uh, corporations that are based on these kinds of technologies uh, are now uh, about 80% of uh, the, the wealth that is produced in these societies. It's no longer uh, stuff that you can drop on your foot. It's now brands, um, advertising, uh, beautiful documentary films, like the one that you all did on Ga- Gary Davis. Um, it is, uh, it's education it's exchange of ideas, it's scientific professional communities. Um, and all of this now is based um, in communications. So that's the, the big difference.
0: Does Very. that answer your question, Jane? So she had two questions. So Jane, would, did that answer your question? Or did you have a uh, Not the first one, maybe a little bit about the second one about peace. Okay. But, okay. but you can't eat documentary.
2: What was the first one?
0: So so basically, she said you answered her second question, but the first one was basically, um, so there's a drought. We have a local economy, and, and you get food really locally, and then there's a drought. There's no food, so people are starving, but that's not the case this right now because people can get food from other sources. So how would that work if we're working in just everybody's local, um, and the prices uh, of food stay the same even though locally there's a drought and we shouldn't, the prices should go up. So that was her first question.
2: Okay, I I see, I see the point. And uh, there again, um, when you look at what's happening in terms of uh, climate change right now, where uh, the planet is teaching humans directly, you know, the planet is now our programmed learning environment. And what the planet is saying to humanity is you've got it all wrong. Um, You've got us, you've created a system uh, which is destroying the earth and you're going to destroy yourselves. That's what the planet's telling us. And basically the planet is saying, how many times do I have to kick you in the ass? Um, Is it fires? Is it drought? Is it floods? Is it enormous hurricanes? Is it pandemics? What does it take to get your attention that you're doing all the wrong things? And what we have found is that now with uh, these, uh, all of these disasters are the content of our daily communication system. And when the fires happened in Australia, um, people, firefighters, came to Australia from all over the world to try to help. The same thing with the fires um, that destroyed the town in California. Um, And so uh, basically um, we are also being taught that we are actually one human family and we are going to sink or swim together. So um, while we have uh, that, uh, it's quite right that right now we have a very, unsustainable food system in the world. Um, And I've written a lot about this the last two years, that the reason our food system is so perilous is that it's teetering on the world's 3%, 3% of fresh water, which is dwindling. And yet, uh, this is the water planet, and 97% of the water on this planet happens to be salty but guess what mother nature created the other half of the food uh the plant kingdom salt loving plants otherwise known as halophytes halo meaning salt and phyte from the greek meaning love salt loving plants and the ones people are most familiar with which has made it into the supermarkets is quinoa the grain, which grows wild on the salt flats around Lake Titicaca in Bolivia. But there's also China's salt-loving rice, which is very tasty and gets from very high prices. There's salicornia, uh, otherwise known as sea asparagus, which gourmet chefs cook with around the world, and it grows everywhere, so no greedy capitalist can take it over and exploit it. Um, and it, it, you know, you can go out and pick it any, any place on earth and there are about a hundred of these very nutritious food plants which, um, I am working very hard with a group of scientists and people, um, to promote that we have to add these into the human food system as quickly as we can because guess what? They grow wild. And they have done for centuries in 22 countries on degraded and desert land, uh, irrigated only with salt water. They don't need pesticides. They don't need fertilizers. They don't use antibiotics. And basically, guess what? Their roots, their very deep roots, capture more CO2 from the atmosphere even than old growth forests because they grow so fast. Wow. And so, uh, and they're also more nutritious for humans because they have exactly the right profile of minerals and they are complete proteins. So, what's not to like? We've done two reports on this that you can read on our website, ethicalmarkets.com. And the only thing, there's two things holding it up. One is the big corporations that own all of the commodities, the five uh, basically monocultured grains that are in the global commodity trading system, corn, wheat, uh, soybeans, um, alfalfa, rice, you know. And they are very tightly controlling all of this together with the pesticide and manufacturers, the, uh, the manufacturers of big machinery for big agriculture, uh, and of course the meat producers, which we have to put out of business. And they, uh, uh, but in terms of Uh, people don't understand this because nobody's ever told them about it. And even the scientists, we are having a hard time with the scientists and that's to do with a cognitive bias that human beings have, which are pointed out by Daniel Kahneman in his wonderful book, thinking fast and slow. And it's called theory induced blindness. Wow. Wow. And we are overcoming that gradually. We have a television program you can watch that's playing right now on our homepage called Investing in Saltwater Agriculture,
1: The wow. Next
2: Big Thing.
1: That's very, very exciting. I'm, I'm very happy to hear about that. I definitely want the report. I want to see the show. I'd love Good. to. Have a, we have a local uh, estuary nearby that's pretty saline. Uh, I would love to see if we can get some saltwater uh, crop sites that we could find and so on. Um, you know, one of the things Gary talked about, and I think this also answers Jane quest, Jane's question. Gary talked about going global, global and local at the same time. I mean, Gary was a big advocate of, yes, we have to be world citizens because we have to create that umbrella of people, po- of a people power planet that protects our diversity, that protects our different, uh, uh, uh all the different indigenous groups and all the different things that create creativity and differences that protects our diversity and difference and we have to do globally the things we need to like like you just said when jane asked what happens there's a drought in the area well actually people all if you have if you if you become a world citizen and you have built into your app uh you know your systems you you begin to interactively help whenever there's need people are already doing that around the world helping when there's need joining in helping build local economies, doing microfinance where it's needed, whatever else. So we can begin to both localize and globalize at the same time and that's exactly. the solution. Yes. It's not just one, it's not go local and close out the world and forget them and it's not go global and have everything all merged. It's that combination.
2: Uh, yes, extent- and the term that everybody uses for this is glocalization.
1: Right, <laughs> local. That's what Gary said. Go local. G L O C A L. Yeah, right.
2: localization. Exactly. Yes. So there again, you see, Gary was right. Yeah. And so he was ahead of us all.
1: Yeah. Well, and I don't think Gary coined it, but he picked it up very fast, and when he heard it, and put yeah. it right into his uh, uh, into his talks and his program. Uh yeah. Who else has a question? Anybody else with a, a question they want to jump in? Okay, let's ta- start with Jerry, and then Tom. Okay. Uh, thank you, Arthur.
0: Uh, Hazel, I had a question for you about uh, unregulated capitalism. If you see that as the problem, it seems like the world has kind of shifted towards capitalism. With, you know, uh, with the Soviet Union becoming more capitalistic and China, uh, but it seems like the problem is really our capitalism is not regulated. Meaning, we allow people to pollute, we allow people to destroy the environment, overfish, over, fish, over uh, you know, drill for oil, that kind of thing. I wondered if you could speak to. Regulations and if you see regulations of capitalism as an answer,
1: I'm I'm mute again, Hazel. There we go.
2: Yeah, yes, um, I agree. And you see, the, the 19th and t- the 20th century, um, was all about these arguments about ideologies, you know, cam- capitalism versus socialism versus communism, and all the rest of it. And where we come down, uh, at my company is that. There's nothing wrong with markets. Human beings have been trading with each other and doing markets ever since we came out of the trees. And Karl Polanyi wrote a wonderful book about this and he talked about the, uh, the islanders in the Pacific, the Trobian Islanders, and they uh, traveled for miles in canoes and they were exchanging shells with each other. And then, you know, Native Americans used uh, uh, the skin, uh, wampum, skin of animals uh, and, you know, all of that. And so the thing is that when you have markets get too big beyond the local, um, the local marketplaces are really the core of all local communities. You know, I grew up in a small town like that. Everybody went to the village green, the total, you know, the the marketplace. We used to all go there and people would bring their goats and sheep and their produce and everything. But what went wrong was turning that into a massive uh, system of accumulation Um, And then um, judging it all uh, by the measurement of money. And where you ended up with the financialization we have today, which is merely money making money out of money. That's the insanity that we're we're dealing with today. And so uh, basically, we uh, uh, follow how markets have evolved. And markets are evolving all the time. And we had a lot of good evolution of markets um, until Donald Trump came into office. And he's been um, dismantling regulations right, left, and center because of the oligarchs you know, and uh, the white supremacists who support him. Um, I know we're going to throw him out in a few months. I don't think there's any doubt about it because he's screwing up so badly every time you look, you know, that I can't uh, imagine. Uh, I, I expect him actually to resign long before November. but. Basically, uh, uh, we have to have government regulation. See, one of the things that happened uh, in the United States, which Hillary Clinton talked about many years ago, was the vast right-wing conspiracy. And there actually was one. Uh, And it was all of the oligarchs who'd made a tremendous amount of money on Wall Street, making money out of money, you know? And then they started backing politicians with money, and then they set up economic uh, think tanks like Cato, and uh, and they put um, economics departments into all the universities to promote this um, economic model. Uh, And one way and another, uh, they ended up, of course, um, with supporting Donald Trump. Uh, and I think that even some of them are going to move away from him now, but basically they brainwashed everybody, but beginning with Reagan, uh, that somehow government bad private enterprise good. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was it, now we suddenly realized with this pandemic, Hey, you know, um, we need, we need some kind of leadership. We are the United States of America. And, and we need me, government leadership. And of course wonderful. we need regulations. Wonderful. So we're, having, me, th- we're me, rethinking since, that now.
1: Thank you. Well, since we're running short of time, I have two more questions I want to make sure we get in. Uh, first we have Tom and then we have Robin. Uh, Tom, do you want to go ahead? Uh, do you have a, a, a question you can go with first?
4: Yeah, thank you. Uh, Well, you know, this is uh, uh, another answer for uh, Jane Um, and Hazel did touch on the saltwater farming, which is another way that I was going to mention about how to get the um, vegetables and all the produce back to the local communities. The thing that I wanted to mention is that science is already there. For the desalination of salt water, and what I predict, which scientists already have predicted, is in the future they will turn our deserts into gardens with de- huge desalination plants and uh, funneling the water through um, conduits or how, you know however they get it over the mountain you know whatever, but that they're actually going to those local communities that Jane talked about that were in droughts, will no longer be in droughts, that the desalination of the salt water is in our future.
2: Okay. Good. Well, could I respond to that? Um, we did a study of desalination in our last green transition scoreboard, which is on our website. And there's 16,000 desalination plants around the world right now. And, um, Unfortunately, they are are extremely energy intensive. Um, And even if they were operated on solar energy, which they're not, um, they basically create so much brine where they pull the salt out of the water, and then they dump it in the ocean. Most of them are on the coasts around the world. And that kills the, the, the life in the oceans. Um, and so what we found, and you can look at our research, uh, because we, we went into this great detail, and basically we found that the salt-loving plants restore, not only restore soil, but also um, uh, bring um, rainfall um, and and you can green deserts. In fact, um, we have a paper on desert greening where you only use um, salt water to irrigate deserts by growing the salt-loving plants. And you see, what the salt-loving plants do is they collect the salt in their roots, which is why they're good to eat because you're not, um, eating it in the leaves, uh, and, uh, and it's all um, collected in the roots. And then um, you can use the roots, because salt is very useful, but they take it out of the soil the way nature would do it. And uh, I, you see, human beings are incredibly clever, and they come up with all of these incredible, great ideas, um, of which desalination is one, and there is a purpose for some desalination, uh, if it were done with solar energy, and if they figured out what to do with the brine, so that the brine um, gets dried and used as molten salt to for um, solar farms. You know, a lot of solar farms um, use molten salt as batteries to collect the solar uh, mm-hmm. electricity. Um, uh, so there's all kinds of uses for the salt, but right now, the sixteen thousand of these desalination plants are just dumping the salt into the ocean wow. and destroying all of the life uh, in the oceans.
1: Well, you know, that's so exciting hearing you say that, these alternatives. And one of the things Gary would talk about how, what an incredibly ingenious species we are, if we just, uh, uh, make some shifts in the system and in our thinking, so that we can unleash the great uh, creativity of humanity, and and and, yes. and get that to be what leads. Um, we have a question from Robin now, who knew Gary well, very close to Gary for many many years. Robin, do you want to uh, go ahead?
5: Yes. Hi. Uh, thanks. Um, hello, Hazel. Yes. Uh, I was a friend of Gary's for a while, and uh, long and, uh, time. <laughs> and I uh, I keep wondering today what would he what would he how be saying about the crises we were facing Mm -hmm. um i am presently very involved with the women's international league for peace and freedom and we're involved in a sort of history project it's 75 years since the bombs were dropped in hiroshima nagasaki but 75 years since the united nations was formed and that we are still dealing with these two paths that we could take, the path of of cooperation and uh, democracy and of, you know, force and domination. So my question is, um, uh, what do you think about um, the Secretary General's proposal for a global ceasefire? It seems to be getting traction in some ways. I'm just wondering whether you see it even growing and, you know, the United Nations always gets together in September. Is it possible there could be a um, critical mass of countries saying, hey, we're just, we're going to give up this killing stuff. We have to deal with a Mm -hmm. pandemic. Is that, do you think that's possibly where we're heading?
2: I was so happy when he pronounced that. Uh, that whole idea of a ceasefire. Because any opportunity that uh, leaders have to point out the absurdity of all the money that goes into killing each other, uh, which should go into all of the wonderful creative things that we can do to make this planet uh, more of a paradise. Um, And so I'm glad that he did that. It was the right thing to do. Um, Incidentally, uh, the uh, uh, Ellen, um, uh, it, um, gee, uh, Elise Bolding, you must have known Elise Bolding, who is a dear oh, friend of mine friend of and, and uh, in friend. the Women's uh, League for Peace and Freedom. And uh, uh I just uh, uh loved Elise very much, and I think that women are really coming forward uh, all over the world, uh, and uh, we're, we're just saying, you know, come on. The, the, we're the ones that invest most of our time and energy in producing the next generation. And we, are, we don't want them to be used as cannon fodder anymore. You know, um, I, I'm just so thrilled uh, with, um, with the emergence of Greta Thunberg and all of these young people. Uh, say, I mean, this is simple stuff, isn't it? It's so simple. And so I just hope he keeps at that and I hope we all support him. And uh, I'm involved in a conference coming up in October um, with the World Academy of Art and Science and um, the United Nations and UNCAD on global leadership in the 21st century. And um, we're putting together this new model of leadership which is basically no more old white guy on a white horse. We've had that, you know. (laughs) And this is about networked leadership from the grassroots. And um, we have found all of these women leaders um, who don't require um, any adulation uh, or credit. They, They just do what they know needs to be done and so it'll be a virtual meeting now but it will be a lot of women young and old uh, coming to the fore and showing how network leadership um can actually help change the world
1: wow network network leadership from the ground up that's what gary's people-powered planet was all that's about what it was. Was yeah. our essential point of this show and i think you're showing our film at that conference. is that the one are you showing it at that conference yes great Wonderful. Well, uh, we're so pleased. Uh, We've come to the end of our official hour. We can still chat a little on if some people want to carry on or have other questions. Uh, But I think it was uh, uh, terrifically important to uh, uh, have this fantastic discussion with you. And I thank you so much, and thank everyone who's here. Uh, So let's uh, Uh, give Hazel a big
0: uh,
2: (laughs) Thank you all. Such a pleasure. And Such don't forget to
0: go to ethicalmarkets.com and, yeah. and read her books. Do everything. She's amazing. Every, oh my yeah. God, we're so lucky. So
2: free. Yes.
0: Yay. Oh. Thank you, Hazel. Thank you so thank much. You. And thank you, everyone, so for, being for being here. here. Thank
5: you. Everyone
0: who has and to go, go ahead and go. I'm going to do the theme music. And then after that, if you, anybody's left, we'll still talk. Martha will <laughs> still talk with you. But um, also remember if you're not a member yet, it's two months free. So you can easily become a member at our club page. It's the world is my country slash club.
1: And let everyone else know about our club. We need everybody's help in getting word out about this and about our new movie, Uh, Uh, We Are One. It's a compilation movie with uh, the little shorts about Gary and some commentary and it's a a new thing we put out free on YouTube. We want all of you to help get a lot of people to like it, join our YouTube channel uh, and to uh, a shortcut to kind of get to the website where we show where it is, is just to go to, it's about, it's called We Are One, so go to onefilms.com, and that's just a yeah. shortcut to, to, to take you onto our website, theworldismycountry.com, the page about the new movies.